Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic. I'm Maya Nowens. In today's episode, we'll be discussing U.S. politics and foreign policy, looking back to the last days of the Trump administration, but more importantly, looking forward to what we can expect from a Biden administration. Yesterday, former Vice President, now President Joe Biden, was sworn in as the 46th President of the United States, inheriting a nation overwhelmed by the COVID crisis and divided by the last four years of Donald Trump's presidency, which culminated on January 6th with a deadly assault on the Capitol as Trump supporters attempted to stop Joe Biden's certification. Joining me today to discuss the challenges President Biden faces to his domestic and foreign agenda, are Dr. Benjamin Rode and Dr. Corey Shockey. Dr. Rode is the editor of the IISS's Adelphi series and senior fellow for transatlantic affairs and focuses his research on the past, present, and future of transatlantic relations, as well as the changing nature of power and alliances in the 21st century. And Dr. Shockey is the director of foreign policy and defense policy at the American Enterprise Institute, AEI. Prior to joining AEI, Corey was the Deputy Director General of the IISS. Corey has a distinguished career in government, working at the U.S. State Department, Department of Defense, and the National Security Council at the White House. And loyal listeners of our podcast might also remember her, undoubtedly, as the previous host of Sound Strategic. So this is not at all an intimidating episode to record. Ben, welcome. Corey, welcome back. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be among you, my friends. It's mine. It's good to be here. So finally, after two failed bids of the presidency in 1998 and 2008, Joe Biden took his oath of office wearing a face mask and with only a threadbare crowd to witness his swearing in. It is doubtful that back in 1998, he would have imagined he'd end up succeeding Donald Trump as president, but it's reckoning with the divisive and norm-breaking legacy of the 45th president that will be one of the key challenges to uh, Biden's term in office. So in just a few sentences, Corey and Ben, how significant a moment did you feel it was when Biden was sworn in, especially in the context of recent weeks with the threats of violence and insurrection? Maybe Ben first. I think obviously there was a huge amount of symbolism that was picked up by the participants in the inauguration ceremony. But this was taking place two weeks on the same location as the violent mob slash insurrection uh, that was incited by former President Donald Trump. And I think it was very important to reject that both in rhetoric but also in uh, performance in the sense that the inauguration was a self-conscious and I think quite successful attempt to project the importance of unity. Um, President Biden made very clear, he talked about these uh, six crises that the United States was facing simultaneously. Any, any one of them would be bad enough, but they were all at once. And you know, one of these, he said, is an attack on our democracy and on truth. And he made very clear that he must reject the culture in which facts themselves are manipulated and even manufactured. And I think it's very important that he did that because as we know, many of the people storming the Capitol two weeks ago seemed to be under the genuine impression that they were, you know, stopping the steal, that the election had been stolen, that this was illegitimate, that there was this terrible deception going on, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, we know that wasn't true. But when people propagate lies, I think President Biden said, for, for power and profit, uh, it's very easy to see how this gets out of hand quite quickly. Corey? 
So I thought it was lovely. I'm honestly breathing more easily now that the inauguration has taken place. The the Midwestern uh, charm of Senator Klobuchar and Senator Blunt uh, orchestrating the the entire inauguration, the um, power of President Biden saying that we need to bring this uncivil war to an end, the majesty of Amanda Gorman, the young poet whose work closed out the session, and thank God that there was no violence. I mean, even the crazy fun of Lady Gaga, who did a fabulous rendition of the national anthem. It all felt so normal and it all felt like the high baseline of anxiety that we have had during the Trump administration might actually be able to melt away as government becomes boring and competent again. You mentioned the violence and the insurrection attempted on January 6th, Corey, and I don't want to spend too much time talking about the insurrection, considering we had such a positive and uplifting day yesterday, but I can't avoid it altogether either, of course. So will the events that we saw on January 6th have a long-lasting impact on domestic politics, do you think, in the United States, or is this a blip? I think it will have a long-lasting effect, Maya, uh, for a couple of reasons. First, because uh, it, it marred the first transition of power in 153 years. It marred it with violence uh, by a sitting president attempting to encourage a violent mob to prevent the announcement of electoral college votes. Uh, removing him from future from office. So yeah, I think it's going to cast a long shadow and it should. The second reason I think it's significant in American politics is that, you know, the president had for years tried to prevent the FBI and other law enforcement agencies from taking seriously the rise of right-wing violence. You know, in 2010, the Center for uh, the Center of Terrorism, Counterterrorism Centers, Counterterrorism Centers, what it's actually called, at West Point, put out a study uh, raising concern about the rise of right-wing violence, and they were castigated for it. But they were early on to the problem. One of the things that's so interesting is that the FBI assiduously going after people in that violent mob on January 6th. They received over 200,000 tips from Americans about people they recognized, you know, florist shop owners, um, to be able to hold them accountable for what they did. And I think it did deter uh, violence, not only on Inauguration Day, but uh, the calls for marches against state capitals fizzled out as well. So it's a reminder that uh, assiduous rule of law in the United States returning is also gonna be important for tamping down on these kinds of things. And if, if you don't have anything to add, I might ask a follow-up question, which is, 
really about who this group represents that that participated in the insurrection. Um, who, what portion of society do they represent? Are they a fringe or, or are they much more substantial than just a fringe? And also what led to its influence in uh, of groups, what led to the influence of groups like QAnon and um, uh, the Proud Boys within this movement? The violent mob that took, that uh, stormed the Capitol on January 6th is probably not representative of the entirety of President Trump's supporters. There are people who could afford to buy plane tickets or bus tickets and take time off work and come to Washington. And uh, so it's a specific uh, slice of the president's supporters, but they do uh, have one commonality with the larger group of the president's supporters, which is that they're being radicalized online. And I think we are in the midst of figuring out how social media is affecting our politics. We're about to see, I think, in the new Congress, much more assertive calls and legislation to regulate social media because they are doing damage to democracy in America by allowing falsehoods to be instantaneously propagated to millions of people. And the scholarship on the subject shows that even when you clarify and force retractions of lies, they still, uh, even the clarifications and that bring accountability still foster uh, propagation of the lies. So we got to figure our way through this. And it's not just, um, you know, de-radicalization of the violent right in the United States uh, through law enforcement and better information, but it's also getting a handle on social media. So just echoing what Corey is saying, I think it's very, um, important that we don't make blanket judgments about the people who were there. But I think she's right that we have to be very aware of this online radicalization. So QAnon, for instance, is essentially a cult. It's like many cults or paranoid movements before it. It has a revealed truth of a terrible conspiratorial mo uh, movement to do evil and to control the world. Essentially, uh, you know, a vast global network of, of you know, sinister elites engaging in satanic worship and terrible kind of cannibalism and pedophilia. Um, it borrows a lot from various kind of anti-Semitic myths like the blood libel. There's this whole thing about how all the Hollywood elites are drinking children's blood to stay young, looking young. I mean, it sounds crazy, but a lot of people seem to genuinely subscribe to this. And what's interesting is we're seeing this kind of cult develop in real time. And I'm sure that the pandemic has had a kind of catalytic effect on this. You know, as we look, we look back at history, we look at similar kind of millenarian, conspiratorial, paranoid movements, they do tend to get, you know, a, a stimulus whenever there's some kind of economic or cataclysm or plague or something like that. And I think a lot of people are stuck indoors without much to do other than trying to have some human connection with others on social media. Whereas Corey says, you know, lies and falsehoods and fabulations fly around at the speed of light. And... You know, there's a horrifying reality that a significant proportion of people in our societies now get most of their information from social media. And social media is essentially an engine 
that is designed to provide you with more and more extreme versions of the content you've previously shown an interest in. So it's not, it is not, you know, a newspaper which feels it has some kind of duty to the truth or to balance. It just gives you more stuff that will keep on lighting your kind of the lights in your brain and get you spending more and more time on this network. And I've heard someone whose name now escapes me, you know, saying essentially it's like every time you went onto Wikipedia, you saw a completely separate website from everyone else. You just saw what was tailored to basically stimulate your prejudices and keep you coming back for more. And when we don't have a kind of central source of authoritative news, then we lose, uh, you know, we, we lose this idea of objective truth. And former President Obama has been very open about this. He said, you know, we, we read our democracy is under threat if we cannot get a hold on this. I don't know, I mean, Cory, I, I hope that Cory is right, that the new um, Congress will essentially start clamping down on social media that is essentially, you know, publishers, but pretends to be a kind of bulletin board in the public square and they don't have any responsibility, just other people putting stuff up there. I hope that's the case. I, I fear that it might not be quite as um, straightforward as that, but we'll see. I mean, taking the regulatory route of, of addressing problems around social media and information online, um, these seem like medium term goals to achieve it and we'll have processes that need to, to be done. But what else can President Biden do in the shorter, more immediate term to end, as he said, uh, this uncivil war? Well, I don't think we should actually put responsibility for ending the uncivil war on the newly elected president, since it's actually my fellow Republicans who call the legitimacy of our elections into question. And President Trump, you know, prominently is a political arsonist, but he's by no means the only one. And so we Republicans have principal responsibility for bringing an end to the uncivil war. Uh, but I also think, you know, barring competent government will go a fair distance towards um, removing the fuel of the fire. And, and, you know, Ben said something that I hadn't thought about bef uh, before, which is, it's probably not inconsequential that the worst of this is going on during a pandemic where people are, you know, trapped at home, their normal social interactions aren't occurring. So that's probably feeding the fire as well. Uh, but most importantly, rebuilding a sense of community. My AEI colleague, Yuval Levin, has done wonderful work on this about the way that you restore commitment and constitutional governance in the United States is by, you know, the building blocks of local community. So to some extent, you can force it down from the top, as we have seen with the FBI uh, identifying, arresting, and issuing federal charges against the insurrectionists from January 6th. But I think Yuval's point is a really powerful one, that the place where we have the strongest commonality is in our communities, and building up from that is an important way. The question of de-radicalization, I think, is really important because all of us have family members 
who, you know, are virulent Trumpists and for the last four years have uh, tr been turning keys in the lock, trying to find ways of common ground. And I at least really struggle to do that with the people in my extended circle who are Trump supporters. Um, so I'm not quite sure, but there's a lot of good scholarship about de-radicalization and off-ramps that I think all of us need to be exploring if we're going to get a handle, not on the small proportion of people who were violent insurrectionists, but the much larger group of people who continue to support President Trump uh, even after four years of seeing what he was doing to the country. I was just going to say, I mean, I think Corey is raising a really interesting issue here. And it's, it's in some ways, it's fascinating that we've been talking about de-radicalization for 20 years in the Islamist terror context. And, you know, there's been a lot of work done of how do you get predominantly these young men, usually in their 20s and 30s, often who, again, are radicalized online, and find some sense of community and meaning in this narrative of you are a you know a warrior in a cosmic war and suddenly your life is very significant and everything can be explained by this this narrative and how you de-radicalize those ones at least the ones who are still alive but then there is this larger issue of how do you de-radicalize very large numbers of people who give that kind of emotional and intellectual cover to the kind of much smaller actively violent subset um, of that group. And I don't know, I mean, I, I wish I knew more, I should know more about how does one go about that? I mean, how does one, you know, I mean, and this is a question I, I, I'd like to talk to you both about, is how does one actually, you know, what are the precedents for this? You know, we can think of, you know, how, how, how were the Germans, quote, de-radicalized after 1945? How were the Japanese, quote, de-radicalized after 1945? I, I, I worry that the answers to that are maybe not applicable to what we're talking about here. Um, but anyway, it's an open question. I mean, lessons will be learned, I'm sure. But, but then again, that social media connectivity question comes into play. It's not the It's not exactly the same. I don't, Corey, do you have a, a comment? So I think there are precedents because while social media is a unique phenomenon, um, I seem to recall that when radio became freely available, you know, Father Coughlin and the, the uh, mobilization of intolerance in the 1930s, or when television became a way of propagating. So we do have precedents. Um, my guess is if we look at when newspapers, when literacy became the general state of the public and you begin to have the wildness of American newspapers um, in the early 19th century uh, or even the late 18th century, there were they were radicalizing force too. And I don't know the answer to that, but it seems to me scholars must know the answer to that. So looking at the priors of when you have an expansion of media availability and what defangs it eventually, because something does in those prior cases. I just don't know what the answer is yet. I think lots of questions for further research on this one than the three of us <laughs> could answer. But maybe moving on to the Republican Party. Um, 
Corey, I have a particular question for you. Um, a number of um, members of the Republican Party have been willing to align themselves uh, or, or have even supported uh, groups like QAnon, the vast majority, I mean, the vast minority, of course. Um, but I was just wondering what these groups in particular have meant for the health and the state of the Republican Party as it now stands. Is there soul searching going on? I think that's too soon to tell. An important indicator will be how Republican senators vote on President Trump's impeachment. Uh, that that seems to me, you know, the, the Senate is supposed to be the saucer that cools the tea of the House because the House of Representatives have smaller constituencies and because of the nature of American politics, that is how we select our party candidates and also how we um, draw our congressional districts. It, they, members of the House of Representatives tend to have smaller, more cohesive constituencies. And so uh, you see, for example, Wyoming Republicans outraged with Congresswoman Cheney, who made such an principled appeal to the impeachment in the House of Donald Trump. I think, you know, her fate is going to be important. Uh, the how senators vote on this are going to be important. How businesses that provide so much funding vote on it. I thought it was really heartening after the insurrection on January 6th that so many American businesses refused to provide any future financial support to those candidates who whipped up the mob to attack the Capitol. You know, Senator Hawley uh, had hotels refuse to host his events. And money's an important proxy in American politics. It doesn't determine electoral outcomes, but it is important for signaling broader public moods. And that's what's always significant in American politics because elections are tied so tightly to public attitudes in the United States that I think those are gonna be really important indicators. I must say though, that it, um, it's terrible that Republicans have allowed this to go as far as it has in their support of Trump and in their endorsement of this lunatic fringe that Ben was describing. Ben, can I maybe ask what you think about the importance of, uh, of Trump being impeached? Is this something that will harm or help build unity in the immediate post-Trump era? You can argue it either way. Um, the people who would argue against impeachment would say, listen, we need to heal. This is not the moment for more division. This is not the moment for some kind of gladiatorial spectacle with former President Trump being put on trial and we need to move forward, et cetera, et cetera. I understand that urge and I can imagine that President Biden does not relish the idea that his first 100 days will inevitably be somewhat overshadowed by this um, experience. I obviously, as you can hear from the tone of my voice, fall down somewhat on the other side, which is actually, yes, unity is vital. And President Biden was completely right to say that unity is important and that there do have to be efforts made, 
not just by the Republicans, but also by the Democrats to reach out and to kind of bind the wounds together. But my view is that also requires accountability. And I don't think that it promotes national healing by allowing a politician to incite violence that kills, I think, five or six people and say, well, let's let him get away with it because it would be very uncomfortable to try to hold them to account. Um, my guess is that a number of Republican senators will vote to convict him. Um, but I assume it's not going to be 17 of them. I could be wrong. And I'd be interested to, if, if Corey disagrees with me on that. My guess is, you know, we might get five, maybe nudging up towards 10, but I don't think it's going to be 17 that will be required to, to convict him in the Senate. Um, more's the pity. So moving on to maybe foreign policy implications of all of this, I don't only want to talk about domestic politics, um, as important as that is, but following on from all of this, what effects is Trump's legacy, um, in particular the last few weeks he was in office, um, on the U.S.'s foreign affairs uh, at the moment? And I'm thinking here in particular um, how Biden uh, will use his first 100 days um, to kind of signal the prioritization in his domestic versus foreign policies. My sense is that um, President Trump's disgraceful behavior since the election will even further discredit um, democracy in America, right? Because America's allies aren't just going to uh, breathe a sigh of relief that American voters didn't reelect Donald Trump. They're also legitimately going to fear how much support he continues to have and the risk that a Trump-like candidate, a candidate who has Trump's views, could get elected in future elections. So I think there'll be some bet hedging, as I think we saw with the EU proceeding with its trade agreement with China. Um, and I think there'll be lots of efforts by the Biden administration to show that they're calm and reliable and uh, that they regression to the mean can hold. I would say though that there's one easy way to prevent the seesawing of American foreign policy on issues like the JCPOA, which is to do what American presidents uh, should always do, which is submit foreign agreements to the approval of the Congress. Doing things by executive order is uh, you know, that makes the system more fragile. The American system is designed to be able to do nothing without widespread approval. There's no substitute for winning the argument. And that means getting the majority of Congress to go along with what the president wants to do on foreign policy. And thankfully, I think Joe Biden's inclination is that direction as well. And if I could ask you a question on uh, transatlantic relations that, that Biden is inheriting, um, we, we know that Biden seeks to rebuild trust with allies and repair the transatlantic relationship, or at least close in some of the gaps that uh, Trump had, had made. But has the European side of the transatlantic relationship moved on since Obama left office and since former President Trump uh, took office. And I'm thinking here perhaps of the Franco-German-British relationship in an era of post-Brexit, of post-Merkel. Um, what does the European side do uh, from now on? Um, does it simply return to business as usual? Or does it, as Corey said, in certain ways, continue 
to think it needs to hedge against the US? I think it's a very interesting question, Maya. And I think, you know, obviously in some ways the Biden, the new, you know, the new Biden administration is a restoration government. If you just look at not just the fact that President Biden himself was President Obama's vice president, but just the personnel at the top level. There's a very high overlap with uh, previous, with Obama's administrations. Um, and I think that a lot of Europeans will look at this and they'll look at, you know, the priorities that President Biden has laid forward, not least, you know, taking climate security seriously. And they'll think, you know, thank God we've been delivered. This is what we couldn't have hoped for any, any more. This is what we were hoping would happen for the past four years. And that now we can return to this kind of status quo ante. But I think you're right to point out that there has been this split within Europe about thinking, well, actually, what does Trump represent? Does he represent an aberration and we just kind of hold our breath for four years and hope that, you know, we can last and at the end of four years, we can breathe again and we can go back to where we were? Or does he actually represent a broader truth, which is the United States, for instance, isn't going to tolerate uh, paying for Europe's defense if the Europeans can't be bothered to pay for it themselves? And so you, for instance, see this split most obviously between, say, President Macron in France versus Chancellor Merkel and various people in the kind of strategic community in Germany who might say, no, no, look, look, just hold on and, we'll, you know, we don't need to do anything drastic about this. But I think that, I think there is a growing awareness that actually, you know, as Corey has pointed out, the past four weeks, past few weeks have highlighted that, you know, there are quite uh, primeval passions within American politics and that another president in four years might be in power who, while he may not be president or she may not be President Trump, might have broadly Trumpist inclinations towards foreign partners and allies. And I suppose the irony is, is that, you know, for the past few years, people like President Macron have been talking about the need for strategic autonomy um, and some kind of strategic independence from the United States. And the IISS has been uh, leading the way in showing uh, how much might this actually cost uh, how much might European states need to pay to um, make up gaps in American military capability in, in Europe? And right now, uh, I don't. I suspect the appetite for spending hundreds of billions of euros might be somewhat lower, given that we've all had to take on vast amounts of debt to pay for the, the COVID calamity. Can I add just one point to Ben's excellent explanation, uh, which is that it's not just that strategic autonomy is expensive. It's also that the world can be really scary. Um, and a predatory China that begins to make Europeans nervous, it might actually want the United States involved on their side of the argument. And so the banding together of free societies to solve problems, whether it's strategic depth on global health issues or climate change. Uh, you know, it's not just that strategic autonomy is expensive, it's also that it's lonely in lots of ways. Absolutely. I actually think that China knows uh, what feeling lonely actually feels like not having any allies uh, in, in its court. I have a lot more questions for both of you, and I'm sure we could talk for a lot longer on this topic, um, but I'm afraid this is all the time that we have for today. So I wanted to thank you both for your insightful uh, and, and optimistic in some ways conversation. And I hope to have you both on the podcast again soon. Thank you. Thank you.
What a joy to be back in the company of my double I double S fellows. And thank you for your leadership, Maya. Thank you, Maya. I really enjoyed being back on the podcast. And it was great to speak with Corey again. And we hope you enjoyed the episode as well. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you and see you next time.